Hi, this is Gary Meese with the Case Against, episode 42. We're going to continue talking about the phone call girls uh, the, who supposedly provided an alibi if you listen to Bob Ruff, which I don't suggest you actually do. But if you insist upon it, if you listen to Bob Ruff, he'll claim that the phone call girls offered Damien Eccles an airtight alibi on May 5th, 1993. Between that and the statements from his family members, I've already talked about the girls and we'd already demonstrated that none of the girls, uh, Jennifer Bearden did offer the tightest frame for these uh, so-called phone calls. Though they were phone calls, but the tightest frame for the phone calls for Jennifer Bearden uh, was uh, 4.30, 5, 5.15 in the afternoon till nine, no earlier than 9.20 uh, that night, that Wednesday night, May 5th, 1993, when Damien Eccles, was, instead of talking to girls on the telephone, was killing Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers in West Memphis, Arkansas, in a little small wooded area known as Robin Hood Hills. Uh, Holly George talked the other one of the other girls talked to them talked to uh, Eccles she said later at 10 10 15 10 30 and uh, maybe in a, and so uh, and she apparently was also talking had she later amended the statements she and Jennifer were talking to Damien. So that puts the phone call to Jennifer even later than Jennifer already had it. Uh, Heather talked to investigators much earlier than Jennifer talked. So if time frame is about the taking of statements is at issue and Ruff has made an issue of that saying that, well, the girls, they didn't talk to these girls till months later, which is true, but they did talk to Heather Clyde much sooner than that. They talked to her in June, not long after uh, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, who was her boyfriend at the time, and she was also friends with uh, Christopher Byers' family. She talked to them very not within a, a, a few days of, of the uh, arrest. So it was not long at all after yeah, it was over a month, but it was not that long after the events of May 5th that they talked to Heather Clyatt. So if we're going to go time frame as being most credible, and Heather Clyatt is not a particularly credible witness, and she admitted, admits that she, she, her stories contradict themselves, and she admits she made some some of the stuff up about who was actually on the phone, saying it was Holly George instead of Jennifer Bearden. It's problematic in the sense that she's not really a great witness, but we don't have a lot of great witnesses in this this case, in case anybody's noticed, except for the police. They're pretty good. Um, So, the other side of the phone call girl's alibi is what Eccles' family had to say about these phone calls.
And what we're going to find today is that statements and testimony from Eccles' family members also contradicted the phone call girls. And, you know, to an extent they built some sort of case for uh, Davian's alibi, but how credible are his family members? And we'll get into that. On September 10th, 1993, again, this is months later, very similar to the time that uh, time lapsed that Jennifer Bearden and... Uh, uh, Holly George had uh, Damien's sister said Damien got, got on the phone when the family got home after picking him up on May 5th 1993 she wasn't sure of the time but thought it was around five Michelle Eccles said quote he talked to Jennifer at that time I would say about an hour well after he got off the phone with her um, we left home around I would say 20 minutes to 7 and got over to a friend's house uh, I'm gonna have to say that Michelle's alibi for Eccles is is the only one that's at least fairly consistent and makes a pretty good case for him having an alibi if nobody else was involved in this case except, of course, the fact that the Sanders family visit was actually proven to be uh, false in court. So that throws that, actually throws anything Michelle has to say into deep, deep question. And of course, she's a family member too, which doesn't, doesn't help things. Uh, all, it's always a little questionable when you get statements. I mean, family members are the ones who are most likely to be able to give you an alibi. They're also the people who are most highly motiv motivated to lie for you. I'm not claiming Michelle Eccles lied for her brother. Uh, I think it's quite possible that by the time she got around to giving statements, she was thoroughly, had thoroughly talked herself in. She was a young girl herself and had thoroughly talked herself into believing exactly what she's telling police. Um, went over to around 20 minutes to 7 and went over to a friend's house. Uh, they got back, quote, around 8. Um, I watched Melrose Place and uh, Mom and Dad, I don't remember what they did, but I know Damien was on the phone. And I remember that because I always griped at him because I wanted to use the phone. He was on the phone until around 10.30 that night. Now, just for reference, Melrose Place aired at 8 p.m., and that was preceded by Beverly Hills 90210 at 7, which Michelle also watched, and which she described watching during, she, that she and Eccles and the rest of the family members watched when they made this visit over to the Sanders family. This is the famous Beverly Hills 90210 episode, uh, the prom episode that uh, Ruff made a, a big deal about as a timestamp. And, you know, it was actually kind of 
funny how difficult it was to prove that this, whether this episode actually aired on the dates, you get you would think it would be not that hard to find out. It was actually there was actually some contradictory information about that, but it seems like it did air on that date, and uh, it doesn't seem unlikely that Michelle. Eccles watched it on that date. She seems to have been a fan along with all her friends, but it doesn't really mean that she watched it with Damien Eccles. In fact, I can tell you she didn't because he was off killing two little boys, three little boys at the time. Uh, John Fogelman asked, okay, do you know who he talked to? And she's talking about talking. They're talking about talking on the telephone after we get back from the Sanders home. Uh... Michelle, uh-huh. Uh, Vogelman, who? Michelle, he talked to Holly and he talked to Jennifer. Vogelman, he talked to Jennifer again. Michelle, uh-huh. So he talked to her twice that night. Michelle, right. Oh, Fogelman, okay, um, how long did he talk to Holly? Michelle, I'd say approximately 30 minutes. Now, Eccles said he talked to Holly... In one of his statements, he changes his statements quite a stories quite a bit. But in one of his statements, he basically said he got on the phone and talked to Holly all evening up until about 10:30 that night. And that's a long. That's a great difference between that and 30 minutes. Fogelman. Okay, who did he talk to after he talked to Holly? Michelle says Jennifer. Fogelman, okay, um, do you know how long you talked to Jennifer, Michelle? Uh, no, not exactly, I don't. Okay, after he talked to Jennifer, who did he talk to? Michelle says, Jason. Fogelman says, to who? Michelle says, Jason. Fogelman, okay, what time was it when he talked to Jason? Michelle, um, around 9.30, something like that. Now... The most credible witness we have in the Jason Baldwin so-called alibi, and, and this this guy wasn't an alibi witness, but uh, he was at Jason's home the evening when Jason got in from the killing. Uh, his name was Dink Dent. He was his, they were on the outs, and they were literally split up that evening, apparently, but uh, is a guy named Dink Dent, Dennis, Dennis Dent. His, his nickname was Dink. And uh, he was there when Jason got home, and Dink described Jason getting home close to the time that Jason's mother called from work, which would have been at 9.30 or so when she had her break. Uh, whether, whether he got home at 9 or 9.15 or 9.20 or 9.30, we're a little, it's a little unclear, but it's pretty clear he didn't get home much earlier than that. Uh, so, and he doesn't describe Jason talking on the phone to Damien. So, there is that. And Damien doesn't describe talking to Jason. I think Jason does at some point describe talking to Damien. And Fogman said, okay, who did he talk to after Jason? Michelle says, Dominique. Fogman, okay, how long did he talk to her? 
Michelle, around 20 minutes. They had an argument that night. Fogelman, do you know what the argument was about? Michelle, no, he was in the bedroom, in my mom and dad's bedroom, and so, and, and so, this adds some credibility to her story because this story about Dominique and uh, Damien arguing that evening was told by Dominique, by Dominique's mother, by uh, Damien's mother, by Damien's sister. It's one of the more consistent stories of the evening. So apparently Dominique and Damien had an argument that night. And it was over these phone calls. I, Michelle doesn't know what it's about, but it's over these phone calls to, uh, that Damien's making. And Dominique didn't like it. And she thinks she's being told that Damien's talking to Holly, George, who's somehow Dominique has the impression that Holly is Jason's girlfriend but they're having problems. However, Holly George says she was never Jason's girlfriend, never was interested in being Jason's girlfriend. And she's 12 years old. Uh, Jason's a little older, he's 16. Uh, what was really going on was Damien was, you know, he had a 16-year-old pregnant girlfriend, but he was interested in this 12-year-old girl named Jennifer Bearden who lived over in, uh, Bartlett, so he was spending a lot of time on the phone talking to her uh, and not spending as much, paying as much attention to Dominique as Dominique would have liked. I mean, Dominique was jealous of the attention that Damien gave to Jason, so just imagine uh, her feelings and reaction to Damien spending time talking to these other little girls. Anyway, Fogelman asked, how did you know he had an argument? Michelle explained, because Mom went back there and got kind of loud and we couldn't understand what he was saying, and Mama went back there and she made him get off the phone because he was arguing with her. Uh, again, this is very consistent with the other, other stories that are told about this. Michelle later testified that Damien got out on the phone after they returned home and talked until 10 or 10.30. Uh, during that testimony she said the only thing really that I remember is girls calling and I would give him the phone and he would take the phone in the bedroom and talk to them after he got off the phone the last phone call which was about 10.30 he ate some ice cream and then he went to bed okay in a September 10th interview Damien's father Joe Hutchison was sure Damien had been home that night Quote, because I remember him talking on the telephone. Fogelman, about what time was it when you first remember him talking on the telephone? Joe says, shortly after we got back. And he's talking back from the visit to the Sanders family home, which they positioned that around 7, 8 o'clock, I would say, since... They watched some of Beverly Hills 90210, but somehow didn't watch the whole thing, went home, and I guess Michelle got to see the end of it at home. It's not, that's not real clear. But they didn't describe staying for the whole time to watch the show on television, so who knows exactly what was going on there. Uh, 
Anyway, Joe Hutchinson says, shortly after we got back, I mean, it was shortly after, as a matter of fact, it was around, he was talking to somebody on the phone around 10.30, and then I mentioned to his mother, Pam, you know, no more phone calls tonight. You know, it was 10.30. To me, it was late for phone calls. Okay, well, he's talking about a 10.30 phone call, and that offers no alibi, and he's very light on any other explanation as to what was going on. Uh, there's some question about whether Joe Hutcherson was even in the family home that evening, as I think we're going to get into with this uh, in this episode. But uh, uh, supposedly he and uh, Pam had separated the night before, according to some tellings of the story and other tellings of the story, he was still in the home. Uh, Joe Hutchison offered little in the way of a verifiable alibi for Damien to police, and he only testified in the penalty portion of the trial, and all that was about his own failures as a father. Um, on May 16th, and this was before the arrest, after the killings, before the arrest, Pamela Hutchison gave an extensive interview to Brian Ritt, Detective West Memphis Police Department. Detective Brian Ridge, that included a description of phone calls. Now, Ridge asked, any phone calls? Pam, uh, yeah, there was a phone call from Damien's grandmother. Uh, he answered the phone, and then I talked to her. And let me say briefly, there were two grandmothers on the scene at the time. One lived in the home with them. Uh, and that was Pam's mother, and there was another grandmother who lived in some apartments in West Memphis, and according to some tellings of the story, by uh, that's where Joe Hutchison left to go after he and Pam had their big argument on May 4th, 1993. Whether that actually, that, that argument occurred on that evening or not, I can't tell from Pam Hutchison's story it's so convoluted and mixed up that it's just impossible to determine the truth when she starts running her mouth uh, but anyway the phone call uh, the grandmother and uh, that was the grandmother that they were living with that Eccles was living with uh, had it had had a leg amputated and pretty much didn't go anywhere in fact she was dead a few months later before he went to trial, so uh, she was not going anywhere. So she's answering she's answering phones at the house when nobody else is there, while the other grandmother w could be calling in. Um, Pam goes on, uh, he talked to a girl that lives at Bartlett. I don't know her name. Jennifer is all I know, and he talked to Domini. Uh, Ridge, about what time was the call from the grandmother, Pam? Uh, I don't know. Ridge, is this order basically call from the grandmother? Call Pam. Call from Jennifer, then a call from Domini. Yeah. Ridge, the call from Domini. I take it was later on in the evening. Right. Pam says right. Now, there's not much dispute that these stories don't contradict the idea that he talked to Jennifer and that he talked to Domini. And Essentially, if you listen to Domini and you listen to, if you take jo, Dom, what Domini says, take what Heather Clyatt says, you take what 
uh, Jennifer says, and you take you take what Pam says here and so forth. You know, it looks pretty clear that you know there was a conversation that evening between Jennifer and Damien, and there was a conversation between Dominique and Damien. Uh, the question is, is what, uh, despite the fact that Ridge, uh, uh, Bob Ruff doesn't seem to think that the times that are given are important, they actually are. And the times that were given, according to the phone call girls themselves, and we'll throw Domini into the mix and call her a phone call girl too, just for the sake of this argument, uh, none of those offer an alibi to Damien Eccles. They certainly don't offer a basis for a so-called airtight alibi. Ridge asks, the call from Domini, I take it was later on in the evening, Pam says right. <coughs> Ridge, well after dark, Pam says yes. Uh, no specifics there. Oh, we don't really get any good times from Pam in that interview. She gave another statement. This was before the arrest. Uh, Pam gave another statement on September 10th to Folkman. She said that, 1993 of course, she said that after visiting the Sanders home, everyone at the Eccles trailer except Damien was watching television. Folkman, okay, where was Damien? Pam, he was in my bedroom on the telephone. Fogelman, do you know who he was, who he was talking to? Pam, he talked to Jason. And I'll just say, other than a statement from his little brother, Matt, there was no one uh, stating that Jason was home early in the evening, except uh, Jason himself has been making these claims in later years. But even then, it's he's very vague about when he actually got home. He fudges on that. He says he came home and ate a casserole, uh, his mother's casserole that she left for him and was watching the Wonder Years. Well, the Wonder Years came on at 10 p.m. at night. So the argument that he's watching the Wonder Years while he's eating his mom's casserole after coming in from being out for the evening and the, the, the Wonder Years being on at 10 o'clock at night is not an argument that he was home early in the evening. Fogelman asked Pam, do you know about what time he talked to Jason? Uh, no, I don't. I know he got on the phone um, around 7.30, I guess. And from 7.30 till about 10.30 or until a quarter to 11, he was on the phone the whole time. Fogelman, okay, and he talked to Jason. Who else did he talk to? Pam says, Jennifer. But... Pam didn't know who Jennifer was. And then she adds, and uh, Holly and Domini. Fogelman says, okay, and who's Holly? Uh, Pam, she's another little friend of his. Fogelman, do you know her name? Pam, um, Holly George. Fogelman, uh, okay, um, and then he talked to Domini. Pam, uh-huh. Fogelman, anybody else that you know of? Pam, not that I know of. Fogelman, okay, all right. And you say that he was in the bedroom the whole time. Pam, yes. Fogelman, um, did Damien receive any phone calls that night? 
Pam, yes, he did. Um, I know that he got one from Jason, and I believe that Jennifer called our house once, too. Fogelman, anybody else? Pam, um, I don't think so. So, she's saying that she, that he, that uh, Damien and Jennifer both called the house that night. Jennifer did call the house. There's not much evidence that Jason did. Fogelman uh, told, no, she told Fogelman that Damien was in Michelle's room, which is the bedroom that the siblings were sharing, even though neither one of them apparently often slept there. She said that Damien was in Michelle's room when the family went to bed that night. Now, Michelle usually slept on the couch in the living room. Uh, Damien often slept over at Dominique's house, Dominique's trailer. Pam said the phone was in her bedroom, and it's which means it's unlikely that, if that's true, that Damien could have been making or receiving late-night phone calls without Pam noticing. And Heather Quiet was claiming that she talked to Jason and Damien on some sort of three-way call at, you know, after midnight that evening. And just the logistics of that, given the phones and the, the other two trailers, and I don't think they had three-way capability, if I'm not mistaken, at least I'm not sure who says it, but it, I think Jason says it. They didn't have three-way capability. So that's, that story seems unlikely, but she didn't come up with that until many years later anyway. And it, it all, it's kind of irrelevant. It doesn't off, it's only relevant and it shows the lack of credib, general lack of credibility to Heather Quiet. And I know it's a paradox here. I'm using her statement as some sort of, <laughs> as some sort of peg for what time phone calls were made, so forth. But I'm also saying she's an unreliable and dishonest witness and both those things are true. She's the best witness we've got on these phone calls uh, outside the uh, best witness we've got on these phone calls who's outside the family system. And she's a lousy witness, so we just have to go with what we've got here. Um, at trial, Pam testified that after the family visit to the Sanders home, most of the rest of the evening until around 10:30 or 11, he was on the phone. Uh, defense attorney Scott Anderson, Scott Davison asked, talking on the phone, Pam, yes, sir, Davison, and uh, when you say up until 10.30 or 11, can you recall anything about that? Pam, yes, sir. Davidson, uh, did uh, around, when did you go to bed? Pam, probably around 12. Davidson, around 12. Uh, in this trailer, uh, around when did Damien go to bed? Let me ask you that. Pam, around 11. Pam Hutchison's testimony gave few spe specifics about phone conversations. In other words, if Damien was going to use the phone calls as an alibi, he really needed to have somebody verify when these calls were made, and he didn't get a whole lot of that. He got some of it from Michelle. At trial, he didn't really get a very good alibi from his mother. He didn't get a good alibi from his father. He didn't get, none of the phone call girls testified. 
At trial, Damien himself testified, most of the night I was on the phone talking to, and he describes talking to Holly George, Jennifer Bearden, uh, Dominique Teer, uh, Heather Clyatt, I think that's it. Asked, did you and Dominique have some sort of argument? Eccles replied, I think so. Despite the supposed centrality of the phone call defense, Eccles' testimony did not go into in detail on those phone calls beyond the bland assertion that he talked to the four girls and that he and Dominique might have had an argument. In other words, even at trial, instead of like using specific times and getting into specific statements about what time, these times are important despite what Bob Ruff says, getting into statements about what time he talked to so-and-so, what time he talked to so-and-so, none of that went on. He just says, oh, he just blanket statement, oh, I was talking to Holly George, Jennifer Bearden, Dominique Teer, Heather Clyatt, and that's pretty much what he says today. And, you know, if you try to pin him down on details now, he says, oh, I don't remember. He doesn't remember until he does. Until it benefits him, he won't remember anything. If it's to his benefit, he will remember it. And so rest assured, remembering details of the phone calls that he made on May 5th, 1993, is of no benefit to Damien Eccles today, and he knows it. Dominique Tier told Fogelman on September 10th that Damien had called her about 10, after which they bickered for almost an hour until her mother made her get off the phone. Dominique explained they argued because Holly supposedly was calling Damien about problems in her relationship with Jason. Dominique did not want Holly to call Damien. Dominique at that late date still did not realize that Damien was two-timing her with Jennifer. Damien's phone call with Dominique offered no alibi. Damien's phone call defense kept getting the wrong number. And the truth is, is that Damien's phone call defense lacks the numbers. It lacks the times. It lacks the specificity it needs to be effective. It also lacked at trial, it lacked the witnesses it needed to be effective, and if you actually look at what the witnesses would have had to testify to at trial, it would have demolished his so-called alibi. The so-called alibi, airtight alibi that that Bob Ruff cites is his the foundation of his belief that Eccles has to be innocent, despite all the evidence against him. That's enough for today. I I get into more of this. You know, we get I get into I revisit these in different con these issues in different contexts at times, and uh, I get into more detail in this in my the uh, material I have in the book on uh, Domini and Dame, Diane Tier and what they tell investigators. And they talk about the phone call and the argument. But it doesn't contradict anything we've talked about today. Uh, and Dominique was pretty darn consistent about what she had to say. And her mother backed her up. Anyway, stay well. Best wishes. Uh, 
since I don't have anything else to do, I'm putting out more podcasts. I actually sort of hope to get through with the books and perhaps move on to some other things or maybe just I don't know if I'm really suited to do this podcast thing or not. It's not doesn't seem to be one of my natural talents, but I'm I'm doing the best I can with it, uh, with what I've got. Uh, thank thankfully uh, I've got written material to read that carries me through, so I don't go off on tangents and blah blah blah. blah. I want to I do want to say briefly, and I. I was going to talk about this on the front end, but I'm now going to be talking about it now. As, as I'm, you know, I was disturbed today, and this is not really that relevant to the case, but it is a, a Crittenden County murder case, and Mike Allen, who's now the, the sheriff of, a, he was a detective on this case. He's now the sheriff and has been for quite some time of Crittenden County, and. Uh, Certainly when I was there, he was newly elected, but he was also well-respected and well-liked. And I have no reason to think any of that's changed. Anyway, on Facebook today, he posted an item about an arrest that was made and a killing in Horseshoe Lake, which is a small community. Quite some di- It's in Crittenden County, but it's quite some distance distance from uh, West Memphis and Marion. It's off over in the southwest corner, close to Hughes, Arkansas, which is another little town. And uh, there was a case there where a, uh, a woman was killed, and she was a very well-known, very well-known. And she was a member of a really a prominent family, as prominent a family as exists in Horseshoe Lake, certainly, but she was a member of a prominent family from, uh, her, her mother in particular was a member of a prominent family from uh, Memphis, the Snowden family. And I knew her mother back some 23 years ago. I didn't know her well, but she was an acquaintance. And her mother and a cousin named Lee Baker, who was a very well-respected, very well-known Memphis musician, were killed. And there were two guys from Hughes, Arkansas, who were arrested in that case, convicted. And apparently they caught the, the, the mother and the cousin, Lee Baker, caught the uh, Sally and Lee Baker caught these guys breaking into their house and they apparently been doing some work the guys that broke in apparently been doing some work for them they were from Hughes which is just like a little distance away and uh, I'm sure they were thinking well this is a wealthy family we're going to go in there and really get some good stuff so that was and I, I remember the funeral and uh, really quite sad and shocking. Well, 23 years later, the daughter of the woman that was killed had, the family had argued against uh, the capital uh, death penalty for this guy who had committed the crime. And he spent 
20 years or so in prison and got out, I think, two years ago. And during that time, this lady had made friends with the killer of her mother. Let me see if I can find this lady's name. I knew Sally. I don't know this lady. I knew of her. She was... Uh, she ran a bed and breakfast there in the old Snowden home. Uh, anyway, the so this guy, this guy, twenty three years ago kills this woman's mother, and then twenty three years later kills. Martha McKay, who lived at this historic home. Um, I think part of what this tells you is that, for me, there's a lesson here, and that I'm not saying that uh, family members shouldn't show some sort of compassion or understanding or forgiveness for somebody who's done wrong against a family member. It's, if they want to do that, that's up to them. But the truth is, is somebody who's killed somebody one time, you already know they have the capacity to kill somebody. And guess what? They can do it again. And guess what? You might be their victim. So at the very least, if you want to be compassionate to them, that's fine. But, you know... Don't don't bring them into your life. You may be sorry in the end, and I know there may be. I'm sure, there'll be somebody with an exception someplace that you know this wonderful, heartwarming story of forgiveness and redemption and so forth. But I'm afraid that this a version of this story is probably more common because you're dealing with murderers, and what you're dealing with in the West Memphis Three case are murderers too, even though they. As far as we know, they haven't killed anybody since then. And without the special dynamics going on, particularly between Eccles and Baldwin, maybe either one of them on their own is really not capable of, is, is unlikely to kill somebody. Uh, I think they were feeding off each other at the time, and certainly alcohol and bullying and probably some occult motivation were all were mixed into this. But uh, I, I would tell you, I'm just, I've, I found that story to be disturbing and uh, sort of disappointing that people are foolish enough to bring murderers into their lives. They don't need to be doing that. And it seems kind of almost silly to say that, but it's the results. You have to look at the results of what happens when people do something like that. And it's not pretty. Anyway, that's the end of that, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.